So the Bible reading passage uh, this afternoon is Acts 5, starting at verse 12 and running through to the end of the chapter. As Ben's given us a great snapshot backdrop uh, to this this passage, setting out exactly where we're up to in Acts. And uh, Liam will be up shortly to to really unpack that uh, with us. Uh, So uh, before I start reading, I just want to say, so here we really should be focusing on what God is saying to us in these God-inspired words. Uh, And in particular, um, that uh, through this uh, passage, it's really clear where our allegiance should be in matters of faith to our our one true God. And uh, so let me me start and work you through from verse 12. And I'm reading from the uh, NIV uh, version. So the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believing in the Lord, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds or mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priests and all the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arrival at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, uh, let me add my welcome uh, to the others for church. I'm Liam, one of the pastors here. It's great to be here. Uh, I'll be working through this passage now, but uh, we will have a question time immediately after the sermon. So if anything popped up in the passage that I don't cover, I'm sure there will be things or anything I say sparks a question, feel free to text it in uh, anonymously or you can ask it in person. Uh, Well, wasn't that an action-packed passage? Uh, If if the book of Acts was on Netflix, it'd be down in the action genre, wouldn't it? Um, We we had everything in that chapter. Uh, Kicked off with these mass healings. Did you pick that up? Multitudes were being healed. Mass conversions, uh, more than ever. And mass fear. Uh, And then the jealousy which always happens when that kind of success comes. Uh, The arrest, the rescue from jail uh, in the night, uh, and and this command from the angel, go out and carry on preaching. Uh, Then came the confrontation. That was the sizing up, wasn't it? The the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council saying to the apostles, don't you preach in Jesus' name. Don't you say this anymore. And Peter and the apostles, well, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to obey God. Uh, And then the uh, Shakespearean scene, to kill or not to kill? That's the question. Do we slaughter them, don't we? Uh, Gamaliel said, oh, look, let's just let it be. Uh, See what happens. If it succeeds, it's of God. Ah, well, we won't kill them. We'll just have them flogged. Um, And then the climax. After a flogging and an order to stay silent, uh, we have verse 41. I'll see if this is going to work for me. Verse 41, the climax. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What a a remarkable chapter that was. Faced with threats like this, And remember the Sanhedrin, they were the very people who'd arranged Jesus' sort of corrupt trial and then execution. Threats like this, a flogging, 
they get kicked out and they rejoice they rejoice and they go out with this sort of I guess you'd say confident obedience that's what I get from the apostles this this confidence not even a hesitation now to me that that's inspiring seeing Peter and the apostles there it's inspiring but it also feels a bit distant living in Australia in 2021 it feels very distant to our context Um, But while the particular situation is different, we actually have the same principles flow out here in Australia. Uh, Unofficially, Australia is a closed country. Now, that's just uh, Christianese uh, to say that it's illegal to talk about Jesus. And I say that unofficially because there are official uh, closed countries, uh, places where it's illegal to talk about Jesus, illegal to try and convince someone to follow Jesus. Now, in Australia, it's not illegal to talk about Jesus, but there is this social idea that says, no, that's not acceptable. What are the two things you're not allowed to talk about in public? Religion and politics. Uh, but, you, you know, we can talk about politics, especially American politics, but, but not a religion. You know, you, you don't talk to me about Jesus, thank you very much. We're, we're unofficially, it's not okay culturally, it's not okay to talk about Jesus. And, and if you do, there's opposition. Uh, you might be ostracised. There might be loss of relationships. You might stop getting invited to the social things in the group of friends because people just go, oh, here he comes again, here she comes, she's going to invite me to another one of those church things. It'll be easier not to see them. You might have missed opportunities at work or, or just an outright refusal to engage. People just don't want to talk about it. No, look, it's, I'm, I'm happy for you, but just don't talk to me about it. And while all those are real and, and those hurts, they really do hurt, I can't really compare that to the kind of opposition that's happening here in Acts 5. Uh, or to some parts of the world today. And yet, they seem to be able to respond to very real suffering and threats with joy and and with this confident obedience to God. Do you notice they didn't even have a discussion after they were flogged? Oh, maybe we should tone it down a bit. Maybe we should go out of Jerusalem and keep preaching. They didn't even discuss it. They just got out there and kept preaching. They just carry on. Why, Why can't I have that attitude? Uh, I'm afraid of the little, real, but little sufferings, smaller sufferings in our culture, and they they hold us back. I I don't want to be like that. I want to be like Peter and the apostles, rejoicing in Jesus, bold and confident, passionate and committed, no matter the cost. Do you you want to be like that? Do you want to have this attitude? I I hope you do, because that's what we're going to be searching for today as we dig into Acts chapter 5. We're going to be asking, how can, I, how can I rejoice in suffering the way the apostles do? How can I rejoice that I've suffered for the name of Jesus? How can I find confidence? How can I find the confidence to obey God like Peter does? That's what we're going to be asking today. How can we get this confident obedience to God in any situation? Um, So as we look at this chapter, we're going to be seeking this confident obedience. Uh, And first, we're going to see the source of confident obedience. We're going to have a look at what the life of confident obedience looks like. And we'll see then the result of confident obedience. Where does it lead? And of course, we'll wrap up by seeing, well, what does this mean for us today? How can we apply this personally? So let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Father God, thank you so much uh, that you give us your word, that you want to be known, you want to reveal to us uh, yourself and help us in this life. 
Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully and help us all to be open to whatever it is you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, the source of confident obedience. Uh, One of the things that defeats us before we even begin when it comes to confidently obeying God is that when we look at others, like the apostles in Acts 5 or other Christians who do great things for God, and we think, I could never be like that. Have you thought of that? You read the biographies, you read Acts. I could never be like that. And the biggest problem with that statement is the I, uh, because we're looking to the wrong source. If we look inside ourselves for the source of confidence like this, we will come up dry every time. But for these apostles, in fact, every one of God's people who exhibit this sort of confident obedience, the source for them is from outside of themselves. It's from somewhere else. It's from God himself. Have a look here in Acts 5 where we see this in practice. In verses 12 to 16, we see in part the apostles' confidence comes from seeing God's active power to save. Uh, Jeff Jeff read this for us earlier. Uh, These verses where we see these astonishing healings, uh, exorcisms, and right in the middle of that chunk, verse 14, is the most significant action of God. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now we see this not just in this chapter of Acts. The apostles were constantly seeing God's real intervention in this world, real undeniable intervention. And always, always when God's acting with these healings or these exorcisms, uh, we see the goal is to save people. The goal is to save people. God acting in this world in power, it's not random. It's to bring people into his family. And seeing and experiencing that is a huge source of confidence. See, these crowds, these multitudes who have been converted, previously, even during Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was preaching, At best, these crowds were flaky followers. They'd come along for the free bread and then they'd depart, they'd leave Jesus when the teaching got a bit too tough. At best, they were flaky. At worst, they were chanting for Jesus' death, riled up by the the Pharisees. And now they're saved. We've got crowds who have been transformed into this drastically different community, devoted to Jesus, selling their possessions, devoted to one another. Now, you might have personally experienced a dramatic healing or conversions like this or some other large scale evidence of God acting with power like like we see with the apostles. But many of us haven't seen that kind of stuff. So what does that mean for you if you feel like, oh, I haven't seen that kind of God acting? Well, first, just because we haven't seen it or experienced it firsthand doesn't mean we can't draw confidence from it. Take car reviews, for instance. If you're looking for a new car, hopefully you'll read some reviews because you haven't experienced it firsthand. So you ask someone who has. That's the purpose of reviews. So you can have confidence in something you've not experienced firsthand. That's the point of a review after all. But if you're a Christian here today, it's not just reading and trusting the reviews, which is what we find in the Bible. It's the reviews of Jesus, the first-hand experiences. It's not just trusting those that can give us confidence. Uh, also experiencing salvation in ourselves or in others. Uh, for me, uh, when I was 18, I went to Scotland, and uh, it's a long story, but part of that is I, I actually found a dead man while I was hiking. 
I was on my own. I was pretty young. I didn't know what was going on. I was very confused. I didn't even know the emergency number in Scotland. Uh, but as I was heading back to the walking track to look, think, oh, where, how do I get back and find a police station? Along this track, in this remote, isolated walking path in Scotland, comes a policeman. Just as I intersected the track. Uh, that policeman was with another guy. The other guy was the dead fella's father. Just behind them on the track were his mum, his fiancée, and his fiancée's mum. Uh, incredible. Two minutes later, and they would have gone past, I would have missed them completely. Uh, and they say, well, you know, what were you down there for? They'd come up to see where an accident had happened. They didn't know if he was dead or not. I'd just found his body. And uh, they said, what were you doing down there? I was going down there to read my Bible. I was searching at that time, uh, having grown up in a Christian home. So what were you reading? Oh, well, I was meant to be reading Ecclesiastes 3. Go home, read Ecclesiastes 3. It's the funeral passage. It's that there's a time for all things, a time to mourn, a time to laugh, a time to live, a time to die. That was the passage I was up to. That's, that's not a coincidence. And that was a huge part for me, God actively intervening in my life, in this world. And that was a big part in him saving me. And that gives me great confidence in God. Uh, now, the other place we see um, God as the source of this confidence in this chapter is where we see God changing people, um, particularly Peter. He's a bit of a highlight here, isn't it? It's easy to forget that this same Peter who we see here confidently, unswervingly preaching is the same guy who only a few months ago was denying Jesus before a serving girl who had no power. Now, this didn't come from within Peter. This came from an external source, from God. Uh, and here we see two things that God uses to change Peter. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Have a look there in verse 30. Uh, Peter's replying to the Sanhedrin. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. For Peter and the other apostles, seeing Jesus raised from the dead is a huge transforming event. And it can be for us too. Uh, we might not see Jesus in the flesh raised, but we have good historical evidence. Uh, the best explanation for the facts around the empty tomb are that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I'd love to go into that with you uh, more if you want to dig into that. Uh, but that is a huge source for, for confidence. This isn't a story. This isn't a vision that some guy had on his own. These are real historical events with good proof around them. Now, if anything could be more significant as a source of confidence than the resurrection of Jesus, it would only be the Holy Spirit, who Peter points to in the next verse, verse 32. Uh, we are witnesses, he says, of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, this is what Paul describes later in 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul describes, he says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but he gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is what we see happening in Peter. The spirit that has come to Peter, the Holy Spirit, it's not made him timid, it's made him bold and confident and not just in Peter, uh, in all sorts of people. People like uh, Stephen uh, Longu, who, who actually, uh, the great African evangelist, who only died about two, three weeks ago, um, he was dramatically transformed by God when he met Jesus. He walked into a Christian event, a bit bigger than this one, with a bomb ready to kill them. 
And he walked out having heard some of the gospel, not having set off that bomb. I want to encourage you to read the book of this story, Out of the Black Shadows, a wonderfully encouraging book. Um, but, but it's not even just great evangelists uh, like Stephen. Even in my life, uh, I grew up going to church and identifying as a Christian, but I was a terrible, I was a horrible hypocrite through high school. Uh, I, I claimed Jesus, I identified as a Christian, um, but it had very little impact of my life or, or how I behaved. And when God finally did uh, intervene in my life uh, and change me, uh, I actually felt compelled to catch up with some of my close friends from school and apologise. And I did. I don't know where I got, well, I do know where I got that confidence from. I went back to them and apologised. And I said, look, that, I said I was a Christian, but I wasn't. I wasn't behaving. I wasn't following Jesus. That, I, I have changed. Um, now, I've still got miles to go, but there has been a dramatic change in my life that can only be explained by God's transforming power through his spirit. The other thing we see in this passage as a source for confident obedience in the Christian life is God's unstoppable plan. Now we see that especially in verses 33 to 39. We won't read them now, but that debate, you know, do we kill them? Don't we kill them? Gamaliel, Gamaliel he, he doesn't have perfect reasoning. Just because something succeeds doesn't mean it's of God always. But when it comes to God's promises and his plans, we always see God's purposes and plans coming through. God's plans cannot be stopped. Against all odds, God's plan, we actually saw God's plan at the start of Acts, Acts 1.8. This is the game plan for Acts. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, many times in Acts and since, the church should have died. It should have been exterminated, extinguished, but it hasn't. And I wonder if in the later years of Peter's life, uh, when he'd seen how, how much the church had grown uh, and, and he remembered Jesus' words to him in Matthew 25, I don't have them up there, um, but, but Jesus said to Peter, uh, sorry, Matthew 16, he said, I tell you, Peter, you, on, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, now, I'm sure he did reflect back on those words and say, yeah, this is what Jesus promised. Uh, this, this church hasn't died. Hell itself hasn't overcome it. And as he reflected on that, he would have been aware that this wasn't something that came from inside him. This was something that God did, that God was the source. Um, so that's the big one. That's the source of confident obedience. Uh, but what does that look like? What does the life of confident obedience look like? Well, a few things to notice from this passage First, confident obedience means a determination to fill this area with the gospel in any way we can. Uh, in the Sanhedrin, that ruling council, as they were interrogating uh, the apostles, one of their accusations was, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You know, I reckon they would have been going, yes, yeah, we did. That, that's what they were determined to do. And when they were threatened and flogged and kicked out and warned not to do it, what did they do day after day? Uh, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. They never stopped, kept doing it. This is, they're devoted to it. This confident obedience to God means a devotion to a determination to fill your area, fill it with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. 
And that's going to mean that no part of our life is off limits. It's not like you become a Christian and say, okay, God, you can have this slice of my life, a few hours on a Sunday and maybe home group during the week, and the rest is mine. No, no, you become a Christian, you're following Jesus, and it becomes part of your identity. It transforms every part of our life, and that means making the most of every opportunity. Whether you're commuting with someone on the way to work, uh, and seek to have a conversation, ask them what they believe about faith. Have a faith conversation. Even if you're buying or selling something on Gumtree, you know, just to throw in there, hey, I'm available for pickup any time over the weekend, except three to seven on a Sunday, because that's when I have church. It is amazing. Trust me, it's amazing how many people respond to that with, oh, which church do you go to? Uh, and you're into, a, you're into a faith conversation. A bunch of people just ignore it. That's okay. But you've, you've made the most of that opportunity. Maybe you found someone's wallet or someone's dog and you're returning it to them. Pray, oh God, this is a local person. Could this be an opportunity for a gospel relationship? Having this sort of attitude means it's a compulsion, not a job. It's not, it's not something we give a certain amount of minutes to a week. It's part of who we are. And what does it look like? Well, for the apostles, it was uncompromising. Now, that is full gospel preaching. Have a look there in verse 27. They're in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin uh, say this in verse 28. Uh, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Uh, Peter, uh, he said, that's the high priest, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, these guys speaking, they're Sadducees. They're a sect of the Jews who believe that there is no resurrection, that this life is all there is. As you remember it, because they're sad, you see, because there's no resurrection. Oh, it's so sad. That's how I remember it. Um, and, and that's one of their theological tough points. They'll get into fights over this. There is no resurrection. What's the other thing? They were really got up their nose about Peter's preaching. You're trying to make us guilty of this man's death. Uh, they've conveniently forgotten them chanting uh, in front of the, the courts at Herod. You know, may this blood be upon you. Yes, upon us and our children, they said. They've forgotten that. But, but it, that's the things that got up their nose. They're the sticking points. Jesus' resurrection and that they were guilty of killing him. And, and what does Peter respond with? Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, unlike what you believe, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. Peter doesn't even give it two minutes of obedience. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to shy away from a part of the gospel just because it sticks in your throat. Now, it's not uncommon to feel the pressure to soften just one part of the gospel because our culture has an issue with it. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, uh, in one of his letters, he was writing about the temptation to soften on these issues that his opponents had. Uh, in that case, it was the place of the sacraments. And, and I'll paraphrase a bit of it. Uh, you might be tempted to soften on the one thing that your opponents won't budge on, but, quote, uh, whoever denies Christ, even in one detail, has denied the same Christ in all the details. Since there is only one Christ in all his words taken together or individually. And see, if you deny one part of the gospel, you've thrown the whole lot away. You've thrown the whole lot away. Now, what's the pressure points in our culture? What are the things that you go, oh, I'd like to soften that because that's the bit that our culture really can't handle. I'd like to suggest two. One is the exclusive claims of Jesus. 
that Jesus is the only way to God, that under no other name might you be saved. There's no, no, way, no other way to be God to be saved. Now, our culture's okay with saying here's a faith, a choice. It doesn't like you say when this is the one choice. That, that's a pressure point to minimize or leave that out of our presentation, of our conversation. The other one is that there is an eternal judge who will judge us for how we have responded to Jesus and how we have lived in this life, and there are eternal consequences for that judgment. They're just two, I reckon, pressure points for our, our culture that we're going to be tempted to minimize or leave out. Um, but confidently obeying God means sharing the good news, all of it, just like Peter does here. Now, some part of us might get a bit too excited about that. Uh, you might be reading this and like, yeah, you give it to them, Peter. You give it to them. You tell them what they don't want to hear. And many Christians over the years, some well-meaning, have applied an attitude like that to how they share Jesus. You know, well, you have it, like it or not. Here it is. I don't care what you think kind of attitude. But I wonder what Peter would say to those coming after him. I wonder what advice Peter would give us. Uh, as we try and live out this confident obedience to God. We don't have to wonder because Peter wrote some letters to Christians like us giving us advice. Uh, he says this in 1 Peter, his first letter, uh, 3.15. Uh, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this, this is Peter speaking, with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, before we breathe a sigh of relief and go Woo, off the hook, I, I don't have to share after all. No, no. The last thing Peter or Jesus wants is for us to say, oh, well, we don't have to share for the gospel. That would be the gentle thing. No, no. Share the gospel. Always be prepared. Take every opportunity, but do it gently. Do it gently. Uh, do it respectfully. Let's not be pushy. Let's not be aggressive. Let's listen and take time and care, be respectful, and take every opportunity we can. Uh, that's what confident obedience looks like in life. Uh, but where will it take us? What's the result of confident obedience? Well, back to where we started. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The first place, the first result that we see from confident obedience is suffering. Now, that flogging they had was 13 sort of lashes with a three-tongued uh, whip. Uh, that was the Jewish limit. Uh, you couldn't go over 40 lashes, so 13 times 339. Uh, people died from this. This isn't just a bit of a rough up. This is a serious flogging. Ultimately, the apostles all died, except, uh, except John, who died as an exile, uh, like a slave on, on a remote island. They all died. They were all executed for their faith. I want to encourage us, don't obey God because it brings blessings in this life. Don't slip accidentally into some sort of Christianized karma. Well, you think, okay, if I, if I really work hard at telling my friends about Jesus, uh, then things will go well for me. That's, that's not the presentation of the Bible. Uh, I reckon the apostles, as young Jewish boys, had their heroes or inspirations from the Old Testament. 
And I reckon, like me, uh, there are three men from the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, who would have been an inspiration to these guys. You may or may not be familiar with the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, they were exiles in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar made a big statue. He said, I want you to worship it. Everyone did, except these three guys. Thousands of people bowing down, these three standing up. He calls them up. He says, hey, I'm going to chuck you in the furnace to, to crisp if you don't bow down. And here's what they say. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, our, the God we serve is able to deliver us from us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. See, they were motivated by who God is and his worthiness to have their exclusive honour and praise. Same as Peter and the apostles. That's what's going through their heads. Not this will go well for us, not we'll escape uh, floggings or even live. Uh, in the midst of this suffering, God's worthiness is what's running through their heads. So that's one of the results of confident obedience. Another one, though, it's not just suffering. It's actually joy in suffering, joy in Jesus. Did you catch that in verse 41? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. It's not just joys like some masochistic, oh, that felt good. No, no, they, 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 it's joy in Jesus. I think they were experiencing here in Acts 5 what Peter describes in the fourth chapter of his letter Here's what he describes. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I think that's what's happening in Acts 5. That's what they're experiencing. Union with Jesus as they participate in his suffering, as the spirit of glory rests on them in a particularly strong way in this suffering for Jesus' name. What a privilege, what a joy, as a direct consequence of confident obedience to a father who saved us. And that joy stretches not just in this life, but into eternity. And we see that in God's delight. Uh, in Matthew 25, Jesus is telling a story that illustrates what it's going to be like for his followers between the time where he ascends and returns. Uh, he, he tells it of servants who've been entrusted with wealth. They're told to invest it. Uh, and then he comes back, <clears throat> and I'm going to particularly focus on one of the servants who's done well. He's been faithful with what he's given. He's done his job, his task. And his master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. This is God speaking, well done. Good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It's the sharing of the gospel that God delights in. That's the task he's left his servants with, his children with. Paul urges Timothy to devote himself to it. In 1 Timothy 4, watch your life and doctrine, your teaching closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation's what God delights in. Delights in each sinner saved, each member joining into his family. 
Uh, Rob and I were actually chatting about this this week, and, and Rob said this little statement, so I thought I'd pinch it. Uh, you might lose friends, but you'll gain family. That's helpful, isn't it? You might lose friends over this, but you'll gain family. Well, having seen the source uh, of confident obedience, the life of confident obedience, and the result of confident obedience, um, I hope you want it. Like me, I hope you've read this and gone, I want this attitude. Well, for us, as we come to pursue this and put it into practice, it's really those same three points that we saw from Acts 5. First, go to the source. Uh, Go to the source. Be dependent on God. This doesn't come for us. There's nothing in you or me that will give you the kind of confident obedience. You can dig as deep as you like. You're not going to find it. Go to God. Go to the source. If you're a Christian, uh, you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pray that he will feel empower, embolden you to confidently obey your father in this task of sharing the gospel of Jesus. Uh, After church today, uh, there's going to be a few people just through that door in the hall uh, ready to pray with you. If you want to pray uh, about that, for that, please come on down. I would love to pray with you after church. But go to the source. That's step one. Next is live the life. Get stuck into it. You've got to step out. You can't spend your whole life waiting for something to happen, waiting to feel different. You've got to, you've got to step out. Uh, but I want to encourage us to do it together. Uh, Proverbs 27 says this, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We do this best in community. I want to encourage you, if you're in a small group, if you're in a home group, well, if you're not in one, get in one. Uh, but in home group, share your struggles. Uh, to share the good news with those you know and love. Share your plans, how you're planning to do it, your failures and successes, and and then we can saturate it in prayer for one another. So that's the second one. You've got to just live it out. Have a crack. And the the third one is fix your eyes on the result. Fix your eyes on the result. The author of Hebrew writes in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is what Jesus did. He he fixed his eyes on the result. Uh, and we need to do that. We need to see the destination. We need to see what's at stake. Heaven and hell, an eternal future of those we know and love. We need to fix our eyes on the reward, the, the delight of the Father. Let's fill our eyes with that. And as that comes in, we'll find a growing compulsion, uh, a conviction that this is what we need to do. And, and let that fill our lives to take the good news of Jesus to everyone we know and love. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you uh, that you don't leave us alone in this, that you don't give us this command, you tell us to fly when we can't, but you call us to do something impossible, to take the the good news of Jesus to the whole world, uh, to our friends and family, to those we care about, and then you supply what we need. 
We pray that you would supply that for us now, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with confidence, transform and change us, that that we might have this confident obedience, this attitude that rejoices in suffering, if it's suffering for the sake of your name. We pray that you'd help us to live this life, uh, to do it together, to spur one another on. And please, Father, please help us to fix our eyes on the eternal future in a world with so many things that catch our attention and our gaze and fill us with desires. Please fix our eyes. Help us fill us with the uh, eternal future that we might live for that. And we thank you that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's, uh, that's the passage. Uh, we're going to go straight into question time today. Might feel like a bit of a shock to the system. Ben's got a uh, mic he's going to bring around. Um, oh, yep, we've already got that there. Lorenz looks like Thanks, Sue. Sue's going to ask a question while the rest of us are recovering. Coming up with uh, uh, another one. <clears throat> I'm not actually going to answer a question. I'm going to make a statement for you to build on. Thanks, Sue. (laughs) I just happened to be reading this passage the other night, and and when you're reading it, it's very easy to say, yeah, yeah, read this before, been there, sick people healed, Sanhedrin's complaining, threatening, yeah, yeah, lots of people saved. But it's not until you actually sit still and actually read it that you see that the way God has laid this down in the Bible is that he Mm. repeats something but there's always a little bit extra added into it. And I think that's why actually listening and re-listening to the sermons is really important because you quite often, when you're sitting there being arrogant, thinking, yeah, yeah, know this, move on, <laughs> I know is all that this. you've yeah. missed that little bit. Yeah. Thanks, Sue. Yep. They say the Bible's a pool a toddler can wade in or a, a deep diver will never get to the bottom of it. There's always something new. Yeah, thanks. Down the front here, Chris. Thanks, Ben. Well, I've listened to Chuck Swindle on this, and he said you better hope there's a Gamelian around when you get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, Gamelian, absolutely. Yeah. And I had that experience at uh, when I worked for a company in Sydney, and the big boss got angry with me. Well, he dumped me in this job that was already over the limit and got angry with me trying to make it my fault. And uh, I'm uh, so analytical, uh, I don't communicate with people that are angry. And he went to his uh, other uh, manager and said, I want to fire him. And <laughs> this guy reacted like Gamelian and said, you can't fire him. He's the only guy that gets things done for me. And God put someone in, in your life in that position yeah, to look yeah. after you. Thanks for sharing that, Chris. It's a great example. Yeah, there's, there's times where there's yeah, no other explanation, but God's provided someone uh, or some, some situation uh, to, to benefit. Nate's got a question up the back there. Thank you. Uh, do you have any advice for navigating between uh, kind of bringing up the gospel, telling people about Jesus in a gentle way, and then balancing that with being, coming across as like pushy, yep. or you know, get, getting into that kind of awkward space, like do we just go for it, be called pushy, whatever, or is there a bit of a balance? There? Thanks, Nathan. We might make this the last question, because um, that's, a, that's a big one. Yeah, a- absolutely. So uh, trying to walk that line between being bold and confident and saying, I'm, I'm going to fill this area with the gospel, 
Uh, and on the other hand, I want to be respectful and gentle. Uh, how, how do you walk that line? Uh, I, I think one of the, the best ways to do it, and this is just advice, take it or leave it. Uh, well, first, uh, there's a couple of good books out there. Um, there's, uh, so the Sam Chan course we did at church called Unawkwitting Jesus, he's just released a new book which is copying our course, no, no, that's all right. Uh, it's the same material but it's in a book form called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. And he's talking about that guy who's just, you know, like people avoid him because he's so intense. Um, so, he, and, he, and he's got some suggestions. Uh, but, but a lot of it's about actually investing in them and spending time. Uh, sometimes it feels like the brave, bold Christian thing to do is, you know, pull out a I don't know, milk crate, get down on the street and just, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to hand out tracts. I'm going to knock on doors. And that feels like the brave thing to do. Uh, I would suggest that a much braver and bolder thing is to invest in people and build a relationship. Invite them to your house for a meal. That's braver than telling them some stranger on the street. Getting to know them, saying, well, what do you believe about faith? Uh, listening. That's, that's respectful, isn't it? Listening. What do you believe? And, and as that happens, as you show care for them, as you're respectful and gentle, uh, in 90% of those situations, they'll respond by saying, oh, they'll speak. Well, what, what do you believe? It'll, it'll come back around. Um, so I, I want to encourage us in, in boldness to build relationally. If you go back to that 1 Peter 3, um, go and have a read of the whole chapter. It's in the context of living good lives, of being known, uh, known for your good life. You, you can't do that to a stranger you've never met. Peter's talking about people you know that you've invested in, that you've, you're relationally interacting with. Um, so, so I'd say build your relationships. Uh, but then something I'm... I get sucked into is these relationships. I say, well, I'm always building relationships. I never actually get to the gospel. Uh, I, I want to, so tip two uh, for me, I have to push myself to give an opening to talk about faith in most conversations. That's what, not, not necessarily all of them, but I want to give an opening. And that, that most of the time won't mean, now, today I want to talk to you about Jesus and heaven and hell. Most times it won't be that. Most times it will be a, hey, mate, you know, we're chatting away, whatever it might be that we're doing. Did you grow up with a faith in your home? Tell me about it. That's a, it's an opening. I'm given an op opportunity to talk about faith. Uh, and most times I'll, I'll get some answers. I, yeah, I, I can't think of many times people have said, nah, I don't want to talk about that. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a question. But I've got to push myself to do that. I've got to think, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be interested and open because this isn't my personal slice of life. I've already given Jesus my stuff. No, this, this is part of it. Does, does that, that help to start answering the question? Um, yeah. Come and see us afterwards. Uh, we, we, we can get hold of some of those books. But I might hand over to Ben now. Thanks, mate.